So this week I had a good opportunity and I had a, a little bit of excitement in my life as well because I had the opportunity that kind of came up unexpectedly to go to New York where my daughter is Joy is going to school at Word of Life and I was able to attend a pastor's conference there. Uh, which was kind of cool. I went primarily, honestly, to see Joy, but the pastor's conference was good too. I went up on Tuesday. It was over by Thursday afternoon. Got to spend a lot of good time with her. She's doing very well. And when I was uh, getting ready to go, uh, some of you may know that over the last couple of weeks, I was having trouble with a tire on my car. I came out couple of Sundays ago, and I had a flat tire, so I was dealing with that. So I, on Tuesday, I got brand new tires on my car because I wanted everything to be all set, be in good shape if I was going to drive back and forth to New York. So I had that. Uh, that turned out very well because there was weather. I don't know if you noticed or not, but uh, there was some snow, there was some uh, sleet, there was some mixed pre precipitation. If it was wintry precipitation, we had it over the last couple of days between here and New York. Now, I was heading home on Thursday, uh, and I was uh, about halfway back. I had just gone through Rutland, Vermont, and it was getting dark. And I was, as you get out of Rutland, you start heading up the mountains because you're in the Appalachians, you're in the Green Mountains. And um, I had noticed over the previous couple of days that um, when I was trying to accelerate the, with the car, uh, it's a manual transmission, it's a stick, and when I would try to accelerate, it didn't seem like it was accelerating as well as it should. Now, it was so slight at first that I thought, you know, maybe I was just imagining things. And then we had all the weather, so I thought, well, okay, maybe it's road conditions. It wasn't. As I was heading out of Rutland, going up the mountains, it became increasingly clear to me that things were not working as they should because I was trying to accelerate. The RPMs were going up, but I was not going any faster. So I began to try to adjust and kind of see what's going on. So as I'm going up the mountain, I'm downshifting, and that helped a little bit. And I, and I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll make it, um, but I didn't. <laughs> so as I'm going up the mountain and I'm downshifting and it's becoming worse, actually, it's not my imagination. It's not the road conditions. Something has gone wrong with my car. And so I, uh, trying to adjust, trying to downshift, I begin to look and see where would be a good place to stop. Uh, the roads are getting a little slick, it's getting dark, and there's not a lot around. But as I was approaching the top of the hill, which I found out later was actually the top of the hill. It was, the, it was where the Appalachian Trail goes pretty much right along through Vermont. And I wasn't going to get any farther. I was trying to downshift. Eventually, the stick was just stuck in neutral, and I couldn't do anything. So I just pulled off to the side of the road, and I hit the hazard lights. Now, if I had known what was going to happen, of course, 
I wouldn't have taken off from New York that day. I would have stayed there, asked some people around, hey, where do you take your car when things are not quite right? I would have planned my life a little bit differently than getting stuck on the side of the road in a wintry mix in the dark far from home. Now, remind me, because I've done this before, to tell you the rest of the story at the end. But I'm not going to tell you right now, and I don't want to send you home, and you're like, what happened? I'm like, oh, I forgot to tell you. I've done that before. Um, so, but what that story reminded me of as I was looking at this passage and thinking about what I was going to talk about today was actually something that my pastor, the pastor of the church that I grew up in, told me when I told him that I thought that maybe I was being called into ministry. Uh, because at our church, uh, uh, one, they used to, used to come down to the front whenever you were accepting Christ, or you wanted to be baptized, or you wanted to become a member of the church, and, and every once in a while, somebody would come down to dedicate their life to going into ministry, and so I did that as, uh, as a late teenager, and uh, my pastor set up an appointment to come over to my house and just talk to me about that, and uh, that was good, and he said to me, that he was going to give me the same advice that his pastor had given to him when he told him, are you following all the hymns, that, that he was interested in going into ministry. Can you guess what it was? If you can do anything else, do it. If you can do anything else, do it. Now, now why was he saying that? Was he saying this is horrible life? No, he was saying that Unless you have a sense of calling, you're probably not going to make it because it's hard. It's hard work. And if you don't have a sense of God's calling on your life, then you're probably going to give up. You're going to find yourself on the side of the road in the middle of the night when you don't want to be there. So I was thinking about that, and of course, we're in this series called Reboot, which is about fresh perspectives and clean slates and, and things that have been transformational principles uh, in my life or in the scriptures that I see that I want to share with you. And I was thinking about that because very often, it's not just pastors uh, who find themselves on the side of the road in the middle of the night where they didn't expect to be and not getting where they want to be. Sometimes that's all of us. And so why is that? That, that we get started and we, we feel like we've prepared, you know, we've got the new tires, we're excited, we're ready to go, but we still don't make it to the top of the hill, we don't make it to our destination. And it occurred to me that it's sometimes because we, we aren't prepared, we don't, we don't truly understand what that call entails. And actually, that's, that's part of the frustration that some of us have, have experienced, maybe some barriers that kept us from coming to Christ. Maybe you are in that process yourself where you're thinking, you know, I'd like to follow Jesus, but I, they're just people who say they're following Jesus, but it doesn't look like they're following Jesus anymore. And they're not, they're not doing what I think a follower of Jesus would do. They've kind of given up. They've been sidetracked. They've been derailed. And, and that doesn't, that doesn't kind of suggest this life to people. And 
I realize that it's, um, it, it's a misunderstanding of what the call is. Now, when I started sensing a call into ministry, some of you know my, part of this part of my story, I was in high school, and God used that call as a purifying influence in my life. Because I would think of it in terms of, you know, if, if I was a pastor, would I be saying these things? Would, uh, what would I think of my pastor if he told that joke? If I was deciding where to go, who to hang out with, what to do, then that became a filter through which I would think about those things. And of course, you know, that was helpful, but, but of course, it also made me realize, well, pfft, this isn't just for my pastor. I mean, this is pretty across the board. If I'm following Jesus, if I'm serious about this, I'm not going to say those things. I'm not going to go those places. I'm not going to do those things. And here is kind of the, the principle that's behind that. We have different roles, you and I, but we have the same call. We have different roles, but we have the same call, the same call, the call to holiness, the call to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, the call to be all in. So as we get started, this is uh, the message is sometimes separated out as the podcast, or sometimes people will watch just the message, so I'll say welcome again, and also remind you, if you are listening or watching, to check in. Uh, go to cornerstonenh.org slash here or download our app and check in. We would love to be able to know that you are watching or listening and to be able to pray with you, uh, pray for you and stay in touch with you. So today's message is all in. And the question that we're really asking is, what will following Jesus require of me? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And oh, what am I getting into when I say that I am going to be following Jesus? So today we're talking about what could be called the requirements. And the bottom line is this. We have this, we have this same, uh, different roles, but the same calling. Following Jesus is to be all in. It's to be all in. In. What does it mean to be all in? It means that everything's in. We're going to push all of our chips on the middle into the middle of the table. It means that when you're following Jesus, it's not a half-hearted thing. It's not a halfway thing. It means that everything is on the table. And in this passage that we look at, we'll see this from a variety of different angles. But uh, to follow Jesus is to be all in because, and don't bother trying to write this down. I'm going to go too fast. We'll come back to it because your life is not your own because it will cost you everything that you have, and because it will take all the strength that you can muster. So what's the, what's the application? It's uh, the, the same way we get started in following Jesus is the same way that we continue. We say yes. So let's finish what we started. If we're going to follow Jesus, let's finish what we've started. Let's keep going. Let's finish what we have started. Now, if you're not following Jesus yet, if you're just kind of kicking the tires of Christianity, if you're checking this out, this is the perfect message for you because it's actually uh, you're the target audience for Jesus in this passage that we are talking about. So let's look at it together. It's Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. You'll probably notice that as we go through these series, a lot of the stuff that I'm going to look at is from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and this is a situation where Jesus was laying out the requirements. What does it look like if you are going to be my disciple? So uh, here's what it says beginning in verse 25. 
a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money. And then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, I want to pray, according to the, the, the last lines of that passage, the one who has ears to hear, let him hear. Lord, I pray that you would grant us ears to hear, that we might hear from you, that we might understand what you are saying to us individually and specifically, and that uh, you would help us to respond in faith and obedience to what you are calling us to. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so bottom line again, to follow Jesus is to be all in. We see that in this first part because your life is not your own. Now, I love this. This is so, uh, this is so Jesus. It's so unexpected. He's, uh, it starts out, a large crowd was following Jesus. Uh, remember how we were talking about defining success last week? So this is success, right? I mean, he's got a large crowd following him. Uh, he, he, the, the disciples I could see, you know, maybe getting a little excited. There's some momentum building. There are people that are gathering around. This is, yes, this is just what we wanted. And so you see Jesus, and he looks, he turns around, and he sees the crowd, and he says to them, and, and what, do you, what do you think is going to happen after there? Uh, we're so glad you're here today. Uh, you know, be sure when you pass the offering to put something in there. You know, who knows? We're, we're, we're really getting some momentum. Isn't it exciting? This is not what Jesus does. He turns around. He sees the crowd and says, let's thin it a little bit. <laughs> You know, there's too many people. Maybe they don't understand what they're getting into. So he starts this teaching that we look at today. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Now, this is a good translation because it helps to make it explainable. This is a New Living Translation. Sometimes people get confused because it literally just says, you got to hate everybody 
And, and, but the idea is that in the order of your affections, there can't be any competition with me, Jesus says. Okay, uh, and uh, it doesn't mean that you're supposed to, you know, hate, mistreat, not care for your family. He's saying there, in the order of your affections, the people that you love, it's just like the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. He's saying, I have to occupy that top place in your affections. That's what it means to be my disciple. So that's what he's saying. If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Who are those people? Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. So he says, okay, number one, there can't be anybody else outside of me that has top place in your affections. But, But that's not usually our problem. That's not usually the person who occupies the top place in our affections, is it? It's usually the guy you look at in the mirror right? That, that's the person that you really love, that you love more than anybody else. That's, that's, that's just generally the way it is. And he's saying, yes, even your own life. And then he just reiterates what he's already said. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And he goes on to say, and if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Now, for us, looking back from the perspective of 2,000 years, we immediately, we look, we look back and we see the cross of Christ preeminent in that. You got to remember, this is before that. They didn't, they didn't know that he was going to the cross, but they were familiar with the concept. What was the concept? This was the instrument of execution. This is where your life ended. And so to see someone who was carrying their cross, and usually they wouldn't carry the whole cross, maybe just the cross beam. If you saw somebody walking down the street carrying that cross beam, they were walking to their death. Their life was over for all intents and purposes. And so he's saying, look, if this is what it means, you crowd, you people that are following me, uh, to be my disciple. It means you're giving up your life from this point on. Siri, I'm not talking to you. You're giving up your life. Now, five years ago this month, I had open heart surgery. Some of you know this. It's the last time the Eagles were in the Super Bowl and won against the Patriots. <laughs> All right, now. <laughs> but the night, the night, and I watched that the night before I had my surgery. I'm like, oh, this is not a good sign. Uh, uh, so so I, I, go, I had gone in for a cardiac catheterization, and because of my youth, I'm a young guy, and because of my relative good health, they did not expect to find much. They're thinking, oh, you know, there might be a little bit of a blockage. We'll maybe put a stent in, that kind of thing. But they found what I kind of already intuited, which was that there were major blocks and they needed to do multiple bypass surgery. So I remember the cardiac surgeon coming in to talk to Sue Ellen and me about this. And and. And he kind of felt like, I, I could tell he was like, this is kind of surprise. We weren't expecting this. We know you probably weren't expecting this. Uh, but, but this really needs to happen. It's that bad. It's that important. And what he said was, in typical 
cardiac surgeon understatement was, if you don't do this, you're probably going to have a major cardiac event in the next five years. Now, I know what a major cardiac event is. My father, when he was, biological father, when he was age 46, had a major heart attack that almost killed him. That is a, that is a major cardiac event. So I knew what he was saying was, this is important. You, you, you probably won't live past five years if we don't do this. Now, like I said, this month, I passed that five-year anniversary. And I got to thinking about it. And I was like, you know, I, I'm on borrowed time. I'm, I, I, this is free time for me. Like, if, if, I had li- if I had been born 100 years ago, I wouldn't be alive today. Not only because I'd be over 150 years old. That would be pretty crazy. But, but no, you know what I'm saying. You mean what I know. That if uh, I had been uh, born 100 years ago and lived to this point, I probably wouldn't have lived to this age and so if it were not for the, modern, the miracles of modern medicine and the grace of God, I would not be here. So now, especially, having passed that five-year mark, I just have the sense that I'm on Jesus' time. You know what I'm saying? That, uh, that uh, uh, this is a gift. I mean, every day of our lives, regardless of your situation, is a gift. And, and we're I'm on Jesus' time. It belongs to him. If it didn't before, I've got an even stronger sense of it now. That's what it means when Jesus says, if you don't carry your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. What you're, what you're doing is you're saying, I, I, I'm, you, you walked to your death for me, so now my life is yours. From this point on, I don't own it. In fact, anything that, you, anything that you put after the word my is not really yours. My life, my time, my house, my stuff, my job, my family, my spouse, all of that stuff is not yours. It is a gift that God has given you for you to steward, to manage for the time that you are here, but it all belongs to him and you're going to give an account for the way that you have managed it. So your life is not your own. If you're a follower of Jesus, 2 Corinthians 6, 9, I think I almost put it in here, was um, you are not your own, you are bought with a price. You don't belong to you, and your life is not your own. So Jesus has to be number one in your affections, and he has to displace even you in your affections because you're on Jesus' time. So to follow Jesus means to be all in. Second story he tells, and again, really, it's just the same story told from different angles, is because it will cost you everything that you have. So he begins the session by saying, don't begin, don't set out on this journey until you count the cost. Make sure that you can finish the, finish the journey, finish the job. And he uses the illustration of building a house and said, if you were going to build a house, obviously you would sit down and you would calculate, okay, this is how much it's going to cost. And then you compare that to your available resources. And you wouldn't set out on the journey. You wouldn't lay the foundation until you, unless you thought that you could finish the house, that you had the resources for it. The reason he gives is if you, only get, if you only get the foundation laid and then run out of money, you're going to look pretty foolish. This is the message translation. Everyone passing by will poke fun at you and say, he started something he couldn't finish. I was thinking about, you know, we don't really, 
make fun of people for this. It doesn't really like strike us as funny. But, but what does is, have you ever seen the fail army videos? Anybody familiar with that? You've seen some of those? I was thinking about it. Those are all people who start out on something and don't, it doesn't finish the way that they expected. You know, it's like parkour turns into hit the floor. It's, uh, you know, you're going to swing over that mud puddle. No, you're not. You're going to land face down in that mud puddle. You set out to do something, but you didn't quite finish it. And we think that's funny sometimes. And so in the same way, saying, look, you know, it, you're going to look stupid if you get started on this journey and then you have to give up and pull off to the side of the road. It's not going to end well for you. But here, I mean, I put there, you know, the, our, our money. What's one of the things that we put after my is my money. Um, if, you, uh, if I wasn't here, I wouldn't care. If I was dead, I wouldn't care much about my money. There's nothing I could do about it. I couldn't fix stuff with the house. I couldn't take care of my family. There's, I wouldn't be here. And so I can release all of that stuff because it's not mine. And by all rights, I shouldn't be here, but it belongs to Jesus and he's in control, and my surrendering and recognizing that is just acknowledging the truth. Because to follow Jesus is to be all in. And then in the next story about the king going to war, again, same story, different angle, because it will take all the strength that you can muster. So he says, or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat 20,000 soldiers marching against him. Now, already, we see that this is out of balance a little bit. You're, you're already recognizing if you're that king, you're in a deficit position. So there, there needs to be something else going on if you are going to pull this out. But you know for sure it's going to take all of your resources. You know, you're going to need all 10,000 of those men to step up to the plate and give their all if you're even going to have a chance. And he's saying, look, you wouldn't start out on this journey if you, you wouldn't start this war, you wouldn't enter into this battle unless you had a reasonable sense that you could come out the other side victorious. Because if not, then it would call for a different strategy. That's what he, say, he says in the next part of the verse. And if he can't, he says, I'm not going to, my, my 10,000 aren't up to it. He'll send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. He's not going to enter into that if he has a sense this is going to be a losing battle. And then the reason I think, again, that it's all the same story just from different angles, it's not necessarily about money. It's not necessarily about strength. It's about just being all in, is that in the very next verse, what Jesus says is, so you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. It's, it's about being all in. Now, um, this is very characteristic of Luke's gospel. Each of the different gospels has a particular flavor depending on the author. Like the gospel of Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience to show that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but he's also including the Gentiles. That's the subtext of everything that happens in the book of Matthew. Mark 
is a, was a companion of the Apostle Peter. It's Peter's preaching. It's the shortest gospel. It's the most action-packed one. That, those are some of the con- characteristics of the Gospel of Mark. When you get to Luke, Luke's characteristic is he's a doctor, but he was an excellent historian. So everything is put in its historical place. It was the year that Tiberius was Caesar, or you know, this is, Pont- Pontius Pilate was the governor. The, all of these things is put in that. So that's one characteristic. Another characteristic is an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Spirit. He emphasizes the Holy Spirit more than any of the other gospel writers. And thirdly, he emphasizes the necessity for and care of care for the poor and, and just giving up of your resources, letting go of your resources and emphasizing the needs of the poor. So, he, so this is very characteristic of the gospel of Luke. He's saying, he's just talking about war. He's just talking about soldiers. He's talking about suing for peace. And then he comes back around to, oh, and by the way, you cannot, uh, uh, Jesus' words are, you cannot get, be my disciple without giving up everything you own, you're liquidating, right? You know, you never see, we said last week, a U-Haul being dragged behind a hearse. Why? Because you're, you're liquidated at that point. And if you're carrying your cross, you're, you're liquidating everything. You don't care because tomorrow you're not going to own anything. And he's saying, look, when you become a follower of Jesus, it's the same way. You're, in essence, giving up everything that you own. And then he continues with the theme, and this should sound familiar because it's in the, the, the Sermon on the Mount as well. Uh, he concludes with this. Salt is good, uh, but if it loses its saltiness, this is actually the NIV. I forgot to change that be- um, because in the NLT, it talks about salt being salty, but it literally just says salt is good. Salt is useful. It's, it's beneficial, it, it, it has its purpose. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now, excuse me, um, this is a little bit confusing. It, it, the same kind of thing is said in the Gospel of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, because we're not, we're not familiar with a kind of salt that loses its saltiness, right? I mean, you, you never say, oh, that table salt, that's gone bad. It's not salty anymore. <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to stay salty uh, or it's gone. You know, it might be gone, but it's still, uh, if it's there, it's salty. So what's going on here? Well, in the ancient world, in, in the ancient Middle East where Jesus is teaching, there are three different ways that you get salt. You can get it from the sea. You can take some of the, uh, the, the very salty Dead Sea and that's why it's dead, it's salty. Uh, and you can boil it down and get salt out of that, the salt of the sea. Uh, you can also mine for it. You can dig for it and you can mine it up. Or you can also gather it up. Along the marshes, there would be these salty outcroppings that people would gather up, and it was a rock salt or a salt from the earth. Now, most likely, that third one is the one that he's talking about here. And it's, of course, a mixed compound. It's not pure salt like you have in your salt shaker at home. So what could happen is that if that salt sat around, if it was humid, if it wasn't stored properly, the salt, the sodium chloride, would actually leach out of it. So your rock salt wouldn't be salty anymore. The salt was gone. So he's saying people would gather up this salt because it's useful, it's beneficial. 
uh, has its uses. But once, if it's not stored properly, if it loses its saltiness, then it's not going to be worth anything anymore. And in fact, he goes on to say, it is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Now, what's going on there? This, this is fascinating. I didn't, know, I didn't know any of this stuff until I started studying it a couple of years ago. So one of the uses, ancient uses of these, this rock salt that they would gather up is they would use it as fertilizer. Now, um, I don't know exactly how that works, and they're not sure either, but they think that part of it might be like people until within the last 100 years would sometimes spread salt on some of their, their gardens because it would go deep enough to kill the shallow-rooted weeds, but it would stimulate the soil and, and help the plants that you were trying to grow. So maybe it was that. Sometimes uh, it would help the absorption in, a, in the right amount. You can't overdo it. it would, uh, uh, in the right amount, it would help the absorption of certain nutrients. Now, today, we just put those specific nutrients on as fertilizers. We don't worry about that. But this was, it was kind of like a fertilizer. You could spread that on your field, and it would act as a fertilizer. Or they could put it on the manure pile. Why would they do that? Well, just like we're familiar with the preserving uh, characteristic of salt. It used to be before we had refrigeration, people would salt their meats to preserve them. Well, if you wanted to preserve the manure pile for later use, then you could put salt on it. But the whole thing is salt has its uses. It's good. It's beneficial. But if the salt leaches out, the sodium chloride leaches out, then your rock salt is useless. It's not good anymore. It can be thrown out. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says it's no good except to be trampled on by men. And what they would, what they would do sometimes is they would spread that perhaps over a path, perhaps over the sod top of their, um, of their roofs because they would gather and, ha- and use that as usable space because it would harden the ground and add kind of like a solid pack to it. So they would just throw it out if it wasn't salty anymore. They would tread on it. So that's what's going on there. What is, uh, let's dial that back a little bit. What is he saying? Whether it's money to build a house or troops to fight a war or the saltiness of, of your rock salt, you need to have a certain potency it has, to ha- it has to be able to do what it's supposed to do. You have to have enough of it, and it has to accomplish its purpose, or else it's worthless. You shouldn't start the, the building. You shouldn't go to battle. Your rock salt isn't going to do you any good. And so he says, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. And we've talked before about how the idea of listen is not just sound waves hitting your eardrums, it's the idea that you're actually going to hear something and then do something about it. If you pray in the Psalms, it says, God heard my voice. It doesn't mean that he just happened to notice you were praying. It means he heard you and he's going to do something about it. So today, what does it mean for us to listen and understand? Today, we're talking about requirements. We've said that to follow Jesus is to be all in and the application is to finish what we've started. Now, I put say yes there because on the check-in, on your check-in card, down at the bottom, we have our next steps, and it begins with saying yes. What are we talking about there? We're saying yes to Jesus. That's how we get started on this journey. 
we say yes to his salvation and to his lordship. We say yes to his salvation. We want what you did on the cross for us when you died for our sins to count for us so that just as you were raised from the dead, we can have new life. We can be on Jesus' time. It also means that we are saying yes to his lordship. When you're on Jesus' time, he gets to call the shots. He's the boss. And so we are saying, yes, this is what all what Jesus has been talking about in this entire passage. To follow me, he's saying, is to be all in. It's writing that blank check, say yes. What's the question? I don't know. But if Jesus is asking it, the answer is yes. So if you are already on this journey, this is just a reminder that your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. Whatever Jesus asks of you, that your answer is yes. That's what it means to follow Jesus. If you didn't understand that, now you do. But it's also, it's the way we get started is the same way that we continue. So just as a way of responding, if you're starting this journey for the first time, circle that say yes twice. That's why I've got two circles around that in your growth guide. That's to indicate, I'm not just saying yes, like I'm keeping going. This is my first step in Jesus' directions in Jesus' direction. Maybe you just want to reaffirm, I understand. This is what it means to follow Jesus. I'm saying yes to him. You can circle that just as your way of, of, of acknowledging that. But I think, and this is how I want to end, the news is actually even better than that. Because um, when you get started on this journey, you don't know whether you're going to have the resources to finish. You know you don't have enough money to build that building. You know you've only got 10,000 troops and the, troop, uh, and the troops arrayed against you are 20,000. You, you, you don't know if that pile of rock salt sitting in the corner is still salty or not. You, you don't know if you have it within you. The apostle Paul faced a similar situation when he was dealing with that famous thorn in his flesh. He asked God to remove it. He says, in essence, I don't have it within me to deal with this pain, with this suffering, with this thorn, whatever it is. And he prayed repeatedly that God would resolve that situation. But do you remember what the Lord's response to him was? It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, each time he, the Lord, Jesus, said to Paul, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Now, I've always pictured this as, you know, you could think of it like this. I've got, I've got my little cup, and this, the water in it represents my power. Okay, and we look at our cup and we're like, okay, I think we're doing pretty good. Now, we could use some more, and so Jesus comes along with his, with his power, with his resources, and he can pour it a little bit. He can add to that, do more than we could do in and of ourselves, and we could feel pretty good about that, except when we realize this is our actual state, Right? Even when we think we got it all together and we got it all going on and we got everything we need, there'll be some situation that comes up, some place where you don't and you don't have everything you need and you can't get up the hill and you can't get home and you find yourself on the side of the road 
needing more power. This is the blessing of recognizing your weakness. Because what does this mean? This means that God can come along and he can pour into you more than you thought, more than you could imagine, more than you could have ever hoped for. Because his power works best in weakness. So the Apostle Paul goes on to say, so now (laughs) I'm glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. His grace is sufficient for you. I told you I'd tell you the rest of the story. It's really simple. In the midst of being pulled off on the side of the road and being kind of stressed and kind of concerned, God's grace was there, and I had so much to be thankful for. I told you I was almost to the top of the hill. Well, almost 100 years ago, there was an inn built on the top of the hill because that's where the people going on the Appalachian Trail would come along and they needed a place to stay. So as I looked up and to the left, I saw an inn and a restaurant within walking distance. So I was able to go up there, talk to the bartender. He he, uh, recommended a towing company. The towing company recommended a place where I could take my car. Do you have uh, a room available for the night? Yes. Breakfast the next morning, able to call, able to be safe, able to take care of business, even in the midst of a a a situation I would not choose. God was gracious and faithful to me. He made up for my weakness and took care of me all the way. And I believe that he will do the same for you. Our responsibility is to just say yes, to open ourselves up and allow him to pour into us his power because if you are willing, he is able. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful because when we look at our resources, we definitely recognize we are always going to fall short. And you gave your all for us, so we want to give our all for you, but we need your help. You, so often in the Gospels, were constantly pointing out you don't have what it takes. You, you, you think you do, but you're always going to fall short. You need me to make up the difference, and thank you, Lord, that through the cross, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you have done exactly that. So we offer to you our unconditional yes. We want to be all in. We know we can't do it without your strength and power, and you're putting that willingness in us. So we accept that as a gift and ask that you would show us exactly exactly what we need to do with what we've heard today and give us the power, strength, and courage to act accordingly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.